Father, we thank you for our time tonight, and we thank you that you have provided for us <clears throat> adequate guidance and adequate resources uh, to live the Christian life, that you've given us hope because you alone have the real solutions uh, to great problems, great and small. And we pray that tonight you would continue to illuminate our hearts to the text of your word. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, funny things happen here. <laughs> so who's our little birthday girl? <laughs> it's the girl with the red face. <laughs> Happy birthday. Um, let's go, let's get into the... Um, continuity for the golden era of Solomon. I want to spend just a few quick minutes at the beginning, and I want to cover a lot of material tonight. Uh, we'll meet next week, and then we won't meet for two weeks. So we're going to try to cover quite a bit of material tonight by way of review and to put some of this stuff that we've learned in the golden era of Solomon uh, in perspective. One of the things we can't emphasize enough over and over in this class is to think in terms of the progress of revelation. That God administers history like a teacher administers lessons, one after another. History has a progress, revelation has a progress, and there's a coherence to the way God works. <clears throat> and we're right now in this golden era of Solomon. Uh, we're shortly to get into the decline of the kingdom. And we'll get into the fall of the kingdom. That's coming up. But right now we're at this golden era of Solomon and we are trying to visualize that era, uh, the big ideas behind what was going on in God's mind for that era in biblical history. Time frame running 900 to 1000 BC. Um, so what we want to do tonight is go to the notes for a moment on page uh, 10. And we want to, if you'll turn... Um, to um, Exodus, I mean to Deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17 for a moment. In Deuteronomy 17, we have the control for the king. Remember, we said when the monarchy was established. Um, that it was not a totalitarian institution. It was an institution underneath the authority of Scripture. Okay? And we said that the importance of that is that that means that all political institutions, biblically speaking, are under the authority of the Word of God. There's no such thing as a secular non-biblical institution in God's sight. Now, obviously, there's pagan societies with the institution. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that any claim by any government, by any king, by any administration, that they are the supreme authority is a false claim. If the king of Israel could not claim for himself divine unction, 
in his legislative and policies making. Who else could possibly claim that? So here you have the model king programmed in a box. And that's why this passage in Deuteronomy 17, people, is very important. There's a lot of political implications here. This is not just religious, spiritual literature. This, there's deep political implications to this. That the king of all kings, of all societies, of all history, the one kingship that was called into existing by a direct intervention of God was not permitted absolute authority. He was derivative. His authority was derivative of a prior authority in God. And so this is why in, in verse um, 16 to 15, uh, remember we, we covered this with David, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses from among your countrymen. <clears throat> this is after they decide they want a king like all the other nations. And God says, yeah, I'll give you a king, but it's going to be a king according to my way of thinking. And then in verse 16, he talks about uh, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he... Uh, that's an expression for power. Horses were the military weapons of the day. They were the best weapons of the day, the high-speed weapons of the day. We would today say armor. Um, but horses uh, represented not only military power, they represented political prestige. Uh, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt... In other words, there was supposed to be a separation. And this plays a role tonight, what we're going to say about the rot that Solomon started in the culture. He is not to return to Egypt. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. And then, of course, the admonition, verses 18 and 19, which prescribes daily, every day, Every day, a daily exercise on the part of the supreme political ruler, he is to study the Word of God. Now, there's the model of a political leader. Every day, he is supposed to be in the Word of God. So, that's the model for the highest authority that God ever directly authorized in history. So, you argue from the greater to the lesser. If that's the control placed upon the greater king, and then what are the controls placed upon the lesser kings? So, the pagan society with a pagan king, with a pagan governmental authority, is in rebellion against the standard. Inherently in rebellious, in, in principle rebellious against the standard. Okay, now that's the setting. Now we have to come over and look at Solomon's behavior. So we go back to kings. And let's look at First um, Kings 11, verses 1 to 4. We want to ask some questions of the text tonight. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And now he lists some of these women of his, in his harem, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. 
And then the comment of the prophetic writer of the text, Solomon held fast to these in love. So I said last week to anticipate this question. How do we, what's going on here? Something is rotten in Denmark at, at the core of this biblical culture of the great golden era. Something's not right. This an instrument out of tune here. And it has to do with marriage. It has to do with international politics. And it has to do with idolatry. So somehow we've got to tie together the text. And, so, and this is the thing about Scripture. Sometimes the Bible intends us to do the thinking. It wants us to put, put it together. So let's put these three topics up here. One, of course, is idolatry. Another one is marriage. And a third is international treaties. All three of these are implicated. And somehow they work together, and somehow it was kind of a, a, a mutual encouragement among these three elements. What I've tried to do in paragraph two on page 10 is to weave these three things together. An interesting observation occurred, if you'll follow me in that paragraph, religious apostasy, international treaties, and religiously mixed marriages are tied together. Now, if you go up a few sentences to the end of the first paragraph, you'll see I give some Bible verses there, which is the list of forbidden uh, races <coughs> and cultures. It was understood. Now, uh, by the way, Exodus 23, we don't have time to go through there, but Exodus 23 and 34, if you look at those references, it's saying don't intermarry with these cultures. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you realize, wait a minute, one of those laws is violated by a book of the Scripture, a small little book, four chapters, in the book, right in the Judges period. The book that's name is Ruth. Now, you see... Ruth, if you take a naive view of the law, and it says don't marry Moabite women, and Ruth is a Moabite woman, and not only is she mar married, is she bring, she's in the messianic line. So now we've got to cope with a little theology problem here. What is the book of Ruth doing in the canon? Is there a conflict between what happened in Ruth's case and what happened, um, what's going on in Exodus? Um, Boaz and, and, and earlier by the way in, in, in uh, the book of Joshua is Caleb so you have these men marrying Gentile wives to the glory of God you have the law saying don't marry them so do we have a conflict in, in scripture and you know some people can say yeah there is but we know enough of our God that God doesn't think that way so, if we think there's a conflict, there's something we're not catching. So, what do you suppose is the answer to that dilemma? How do we reconcile the existence of Ruth with this commandment not to marry foreign women and then tie it back to Solomon here where he's accused of going down the tubes because he's marrying foreign women? What's the issue? Well, the issue is obviously, in Ruth's case, she's a woman who was converted. Now think back on the days of the conquest. Of all places, when the spies went into the land, who did they meet but not a prostitute, but the lady who ran the whorehouse? 
And who is it that's the believer? And it's almost like God sort of says, okay, now you'd be surprised where believers, where the gospel goes and who it converts. And all the land in all that area, it was the Madame of the whorehouse who trusted in Christ. And the whole rest of that city rejected and they were slaughtered. And when the armies went in, who did they rescue? In fact, I have a friend of mine who's done biblical archaeological work and he was telling me some of the new research on Jericho, they think they found the corner where her house was. Because in the strata where the walls are out, there's several destruct destruction layers, there's one corner of the city, one section that's not fallen out. And that's exactly what the scriptures say. So, to, you know, we may be within 50 feet of where this lady lived. So, in her case and in Ruth's case, they were women who bowed their knee spiritually to Jesus Christ, as known in the Old Testament, bowed their knee to Jehovah. What then do we say about Solomon? Well, that's why in the end of paragraph 1 on page 10, I make that point. Nowhere do we read of Solomon's wives converting to faith in Yahweh. That's the point. And that's what's went wrong here, besides the fact that you have a harem going on. Harem, K. David had a harem going on, but David's harem isn't becoming a source of stumbling. Solomon's harem is. <clears throat> that's a whole other issue, the multiplying of wives and so on. We're not going to get into that tonight. But in verses 1 and 2 we have the case where he has a harem, but the harem is made of marriages to women who have not converted to faith in Jehovah. Now we've got the problem. So marriage here has a common link with international treaties. And the marriages were used to glue together international treaties. And it shows you that in the ancient history, this institution appeared in the common mentality to take precedence over this. How do we say that? Why do they insist on royal marriages to cement international treaties together? Isn't that a confession that they believed in the power of the marriage union? Surely they did. And they used it and thought of it, the marital covenant, as stronger than the international treaties. And therefore, they used intermarrying princes and princesses to, to put into concrete form the international treaties. So if Pharaoh made a treaty with the Israelites, then the way that treaty was, uh, was uh, cemented together was for there to be an exchange of daughters going on. So, the marriage then cemented the international treaty. Now, what does a marriage do? Well, in the marriage, you have to have some sort of unity of purpose. And out of that unity of purpose, out of the values in the home, these values propagate out into society from the children. And this is why, so why when families go to pot, Society goes to pot, and there's no government program that's going to solve it. Because the problem isn't with the government program. The problem is with the families. The government can, has only limited resources and tools to deal with that kind of a problem. It's just out of the league of the government. So, let's review. 
Solomon has made marriages with women who aren't converted. Why does the Bible caution against mar dating, marrying unbelievers? Because you have a total collision of principles. To marry an unbeliever means you have Satan for your father-in-law. And what it does is you have two powerful principles. One, I will bow my knee to Christ, and one, I will absolutely, eternally refuse to do so. Now, how are you going to build unity on those two mutually contradictory principles? Well, Solomon's trying to do that. And out of that, we're going to see what's going on wrong with his wisdom. So he starts with a marriage that's compromised. Right there, he's compromised the absolute principle. So when he went and he used these marriages to, to get his international treaties, he imported into his culture foreign values, unbelieving values. And that was where it started. The rot started in the culture with a mixture of values in the home. And from there, it just sprayed all over the place. And we'll see. It took centuries for this thing to work out. And our next event is going to be the collapse of the, north, of the kingdom, the fall of the northern kingdom, the decline of the whole nation. And it all starts in this kind of stuff. Okay, now, what is the principle that is behind the unbelief that dominates the marriage? Idolatry. So first you have the principle of idolatry. Idolatry enters the marriage through unbelief. The marriage sets up the international treaties and then puts all this out into society. So at the very core of the reign of King Solomon, there was a rot. And the rot rotted the fruit of the culture. Why did Solomon do this? Now, the guy isn't dumb. Solomon is probably one of the smartest men who ever lived. How could he have been so stupid to make this kind of a, pro, uh, 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 a mistake? Well, let's go down to the bottom of page 10. Um, the next to the last paragraph, I talk about Ecclesiastes. Those of you who heard the uh, quick little series we did here in June on Ecclesiastes, remember the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes was basically that no man can comprehend God. And since you can't totally comprehend God, you can only comprehend pieces of his mind, that means that to follow God requires faith at every point. You have to submit in the final analysis to commands we do not understand. God tells us things we do not understand and cannot comprehend. They're not stupid things. They're simply he either chooses not to reveal everything that's in his hands or... What is in his hands is so grandiose that he, we, we can't comprehend it if he tried. Our thoughts are not his thoughts, and his thoughts are not our way, ways. So, that being the conclusion, wisdom of a man must be subordinate to the wisdom of God. There's two levels of wisdom. Remember we started off two years ago? And we kept saying, you'll see this again and again in Scripture and always go back to this and always remember this. Unbelief believes in a continuity. There is only one level of existence. Belief in the Scriptures believes in there's two levels of existence. There's the creator existence and there's the existence of the creature. Now let's apply that category to wisdom. 
There are two wisdoms. There's the wisdom of God, and there's the wisdom of man. Solomon confused these. He had such great human wisdom that he began to think that it was self-sufficient. And we can tell that's why he thought that way, because what was he trying to do here? What were these marriages' purpose? It was to get international treaties going. Now, why did he want international treaties? Solomon was the king for peace. His name means peace. What were half these treaties? They were mutual defense pacts. He was trying to secure peace when God had already given him peace. God had absolutely ensured that Israel would be protected. Whose job was it, after all, to protect Israel under the terms of the Sinaitic Covenant? Who was the king? Who was charged with the physical security of these people? Who was it that opened up the land to them? Who was it that stopped the sun and the moon in the middle of a battle? Who was it that directed their armies? Who was it that knocked the walls of Jericho down? So therefore, given all these things, who, where's the security issue lie? Security issue lies with Jehovah. But you see, it, and this is a, such a subtle temptation, we want to create our own kingdoms, our own solutions. And Solomon felt, because he was so wise, he was a astute trader. We know that he wheeled and dealt in the, in the international currency markets. I mean, he bought and sold gold and silver by the ton. This guy knew all about international relations. And he began to think like the people he did business with. And then he realized that the way to get the deal, the way to get the security is, I'll make a treaty. After all, everybody else does it. So we will build a human construction. I will construct, in addition to the temple to God, I will construct a program, and this is basically what he was doing, a program of security. My security lies in my programs. And I'll build my programs. Well, he built his program all right. And that began the foreign marriages. And then the foreign marriages imported the idolatry. That's how the three worked together. Spiritually, it was idolatry, marriage, and the working out in society. But chronologically, he failed to understand this issue that... Solomon, yes, your human wisdom can't comprehend God. And precisely that makes you a man of faith, not a man of works. But the flesh always resorts to works, gimmicks, do-it-yourself plans. And the result is this kind of thing. So we want to perceive what ruined the culture that could have been a golden era that would have perpetuated for centuries, a marvelous testimony of the grace of God. And what undid it was not in his case, necessarily immoral sins. It was a more sin of a more subtle sort. It was the desire for security on my terms. That was the sin that led to the rot. Okay, now what tonight what we want to do is we want to move on, and I've developed those two charts on page 11 and page 12, because we want to now, from this era of Solomon, from this golden era, we want to deal with the truths that we learn from it that we can carry over into our lives. Now, every one of the events that we've dealt with so far has had a whole slug of doctrines and truths. Remember, we went back to creation and out of the 
creation event. We learned about God. We learned about His attributes. We learned about the nature of man. We learned about man's uh, relationship to nature and the creation. All these basic, basic, basic ideas on which everything else in Scripture is really. We went to the fall and we learned about this problem of evil. We dealt with the problem of suffering. Major problem with most people. It's all there in the event of the fall. You can't understand one without the other. And so on. Well, when we started with a conquest and settlement, we embarked on a new set of events. Conquest and settlement, the reign of King David, and now the golden era of Solomon. And there are going to be more in this series. For now, in this series, the big idea, the doctrine that is emphasized over and over is the doctrine of sanctification. Or the doctrine of how believers, how we come into moral and ethical and spiritual shape to dwell with God for eternity. How do we acquire holiness and sanctification? The moment we raise this question, we go back to a principle. And this is why I hope maybe some of you now see why I keep going back to this framework it looks like what we're talking about now is Christian life stuff. Okay? And that's true. This is all Christian life stuff. This is all the stuff that 90% of the books deal with when you walk in a Christian bookstore. But the difference is when you learn to think in terms of the framework, this, that the truths down in this period must be built on truths of prior periods then when you learn to think that way, you realize, wait a minute, the doctrine of sanctification or Christian life hinges on prior truths. And it's these prior truths that give the power to those truths. So whereas a lot of Christians will tend to seek, well, I don't really understand sanctification, or we get this book, or the secrets of living the Christian life, and all the secrets. I mean, you'd think it was the most classified secret in the history. Everybody's got a secret. Well, it's not a secret. The sanctification or the principles of the Christian life are all flow out quite naturally from these prior truths. And the one thing that we wanna, I want to review tonight with you is that one of the purposes in sanctification is to solve this problem, our old problem that we inherited at the fall. Sanctification's... Um, background is to separate good from evil. Now, we all kind of glimpse that when we have our struggles and we have a book on prayer or we have a book on the filling of the Spirit and we talk about um, the victory over the sin nature and that. We're really kind of on a periphery grabbing that issue. But what we want to do is confront it boldly and directly. Sanctification is nothing less than the solution of the ultimate problem of history itself. The little trials and tribulations that I experience as a Christian in my life are cosmic problems. My little battles that I do in my life is related to this battle right here. This is what gives meaning to this thing. This is not a trivial part-time exercise. What God the Holy Spirit is doing in sanctification is he's trying to solve the problem of evil that everybody's whining and crybabying about, fussing about. Why does all this happen? Why is God not removing evil? Well, he's trying. 
He is. He's working through us in sanctification. That's what makes it so painful. We're on the splitting edge. And the pain of growth pains and teaching pains and stumbling and sinning and confessing and getting up and moving on and then falling apart again, all that, all that gory lesson planning and lesson learning and training is part of the big picture. The big picture isn't getting rid of my addiction. The big picture isn't getting better mental health. The big picture isn't feeling joy. Those are all nice fruit, but that's not the big picture. That's not what we're driving this thing. If that's what we're driving this thing, then the whole Christian life would be nothing more than a self-improvement plan. But the Christian life isn't a self-improvement plan. It does include improvement in the self. But that's not the, the, the game. The game is related to something that took place centuries and centuries ago. Took place in God's mind millions and billions of years ago in eternity past. When he contemplated the grand creation of the universe. And he decided that he would allow the creature to rebel. That he would risk his own son at the cross to permit the creature to freely choose, right or wrong and have a dramatic demonstration down through history of what rebellion against him leads to. So whatever his reasons for decreeing certainty to history and the certainty of the presence of evil and the certainty of the ultimate separation of good and evil, whatever his reasons to glorify himself, those are the reasons that are in back of this doctrine of sanctification. Now, let's go to this table. The first table summarizes what we dealt with in the past, uh, from the past event, summarizing uh, examples. So let's look at this a moment. We talked about five different truths of sanctification. And we want to look at each of these and then come to the one that's going to be emphasized with Solomon. Okay? We've got five truths, five parts. And in David's life, there was one part emphasized. In Solomon's life, there'll be another part emphasized. When we go into Ahab and Jeroboam and the kings, there'll be other parts of this emphasized. But it will always be parts of these. So as we read this section of history from about 1000 B.C. on to 586, when the final collapse of the nation, all that 500 years, 400 year period of history has to do with a dramatic illustration of the doctrine of sanctification through the national history of the nation Israel. So let's look at the first one, just to review, make sure we get, get what's going on here. I call these the aspects uh, of, of sanctification, five aspects of sanctification. Call them what you will, that's just a word. But the ideas are what count. In the first row on this chart, you notice it says positional and experiential. What I mean by positional sanctification is what God does. What does God do at the point of salvation? He justifies us. He regenerates us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. These are all things we'll learn in the New Testament. Dr. Schaefer, who, uh, who starred Dallas Seminary, once did a study and he found there was 36 things. Other scholars have added things. There's 36 to 40 different things that happen at the time that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing things, and we just don't know that they're there. The regeneration is analogous to the creation of the universe. So whatever God, the Holy Spirit, does at the point of faith 
is related in Scripture, 2 Corinthians, Paul deliberately does this, he picks up that imagery of the first day of creation, applies it to regeneration. So he puts it in the same league. So there are all kinds of things that happen at the time a person becomes a Christian. Even though, you know, a person has become, people become Christians driving a car down the road. The car didn't go off the road. I mean, it kept right on going. And I'm sure some of you can give testimony to when you became a Christian. What were you doing at the time you became a Christian? Uh, what were the circumstances? Well, whatever they were, these things were done through the work of God. Well, that's the position. So, God has invested certain things. He has put us in his plan. That means he has a plan for us. He had Israel in the plan. Now, if you go to the right column, column two in that chart, you'll see an illustration of positional truth. The illustration is the Abrahamic covenant. What did God promise Abraham? And the promises to Abraham in this covenant were promises, were they or were they not historically guaranteed? They're guaranteed. Can any force in history undo the Abrahamic covenant? No. That's God's position. So immediately, without reading somebody's secret to the Christian life, if we know a little chunk of our position, we can look hell in the face and not be intimidated. We are in a victorious position forever. And what is that great hymn Martin Luther said? Remember the, the lyrics in the, go in that hymn where he says that we tremble not for him? See, Luther grasped positional truth. It wasn't that Luther was saying he was a great saint. It wasn't in his experience. It was in God's promises. The strength is in him and his promises, not in us, frail flesh. We don't have strength. So, positional truth illustrated by the Abrahamic covenant. Then we have the second part of where the action is, and that is experience. And the illustration historically of experience is the Sinaitic covenant because the Sinaitic covenant didn't concentrate on what God promised to do, it concentrated on what he wants us to do. So these are those two parts. Now think about it. How is the New Testament epistles usually organized? How's Ephesians organized? Romans organized? What two things are always emphasized and which one comes first? Paul always starts the epistle with reference to what? Position or experience? Position. It's always the first part of his epistles. How does he, the very first verse, look at some of the first verses in the New Testament, how he starts out. All the saints and so and so in Christ Jesus. Now we think of that as just kind of like a hello John type thing. No, 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 no. There's more theology than just hi. How you doing guys? That's a statement of position. And then he goes on to deal with experience. But he never, ever comes to experience first. He always starts from position and then goes to experience. And when we get in trouble, what are we doing in our minds? We're always wrapped around the axle in our experience, trying to seek out where we are. But you see, the progress conceptually in Scripture is quite the other way. Which came first, Abrahamic covenant, Sinaitic covenant? See? The logic is in the order of the revelation. First, God says what he is going to do. Then he detailed to the nation what he expected them to do. Same pattern in the epistles. Okay, now let's come down to the next element and ask ourselves, what is the aim of sanctification, If we, in a nutshell? What does God want of us as creatures? 
loyalty, to love him. We talk about that. Yeah, that's the aim, to love him. And we know that we fall short of that. What makes me uncomfortable, that hymn we always sing, I, I love you, Lord, something? Um, I mean, that's true, but it's a pretty audacious claim that we do in principle, only because of the grace of God are in our hearts. But as you sing it, it rings hollow, because we all know areas where we don't love the Lord. So that's the thing that we want to drive home. The aim in sanctification is ultimate loyalty to God. Perfect loyalty to God. Loving Him with all our heart, mind, and soul. That's the aim of sanctification. Now here's a trick question. This goes back to this. Think, let's think about this a little bit. Let's pretend there wasn't any fall. And we're, we're living in this first part of history. Before evil. Okay? We're in that section. What was the aim then? Now, this is a, an exercise. We're with Adam and Eve walking around the garden. No fall yet. No evil. God had a reason for them there. God had a reason for allowing Satan to talk to them. What was the reason? To test obedience. He had them in a perfect environment. No sin there. But he gave them a test to develop loyalty to him. Now that gives marvelous insight into how loyalty to God is developed. It's not developed reading a book, not even the Bible. Loyalty to God is developed by actions and by actively obeying him in a situation. Now, Adam and Eve could have sat there and studied what God told them to do. And that's great. But where the rubber met the road was what they did in the situation. That's where the spiritual strength of loyalty arose. Now, let's move from Eden to Jerusalem in the year 30 A.D. And we're following behind the Lord Jesus. Here's a man who never sinned. And yet, the New Testament says he learned what? Through suffering. Jesus learned? Learned? Did he have to learn? He didn't sin. Yes, but he still had to learn. He was sinless, but he had to learn. And how did he learn? He learned through suffering. Through encountering trials and, and tribulation. He was sinless, though. Why did he need sanctifying? So here's something we want to point out about sanctifying. Getting back to the aim of sanctification. This aim of sanctification, loyalty to God, would have been there had we not sinned. Had this fall not happened, we still would have had to have had an opportunity to obey under choice. Jesus did. Adam and Eve did and both operated in a sinless environment. There was no sin involved. So, what we're looking at here is something deeper than... And sanctification is not just about sin. Sanctification is about doing something that was ordained for the responsible creature, whether he sinned or he didn't sin. It would have still been there. Now, what does sin introduce into, into the equation, though? Okay, now, now we've fallen. Now we're sinning. 
is the original aim removed? No, because that's the aim God wants for his responsible creatures. So the aim doesn't go away when sin starts. But what does sin do? Sin makes it more difficult. Sin makes it impossible to do, isn't it? That's why we have to be saved. So sin is a drag on the process. Think of it, if you want a picture of sanctification, here's one. And it comes, a simple one a child can grasp. comes out of Genesis chapter 2. What did God tell Adam and Eve to do as a way of work every day? To keep and till the garden. And they were to bring forth fruit out of the garden. Okay? Was that because they sinned? Now, some people think work is because we sinned. Well, excuse me, but work is there prior to sin. What is the connection between sin and work? What happened to the ground at the point of sin? I what the ground that it may bring forth thorns and thistles to you. Are they still supposed to bring forth fruit? Yeah, how else are they going to eat? But now what's the problem? The problem is the ground rebels against them. So now what has happened to the pressure? Before they had a temptation this big, now they get a temptation this big. Has the presence or absence of temptation changed? No. Still there. Is the necessity of obedience gone or changed? No. Still there. What's changed? The pressure has changed. The ground resists. We have become rebels, and the ground under our feet rebels against us like we rebel against God. And this is why... Sanctification requires an action mode. Half the sin in the world, I'm willing to save all of it ultimately, is due to a strange passivity. That faced, and you see this, and I'm not picking on people with addictions. I'm just using it because it's a very easy to see picture, and most of you have seen this happen, you know. Drugs, alcohol, uh, some weird behavior. Uh, we've all had friends doing that, so you can see that. Now, I'm not picking on these people because we're all that way in a, in a profound sense. But think about an addict. Now, the addict will rant and rave and say he has no other choice. And in a given situation, that may be because, for example, take somebody who may be uh, an alcoholic, because of their constantly involved in this thing, their, their physiology, their whole system chemically is set up for it. But originally, let's go back. Let's go back to childhood. Certain choices were made. This is why raising children is, is so difficult. Um, choices were made when they were young people. When they just involved themselves in, in this and there was a conscience light that went on and said no no and they wrote across it and went ahead and did it and so now the path is, is more clear it's more well trodden path now the barriers are weaker and so now we do it some more the problem of course in every one of these addictions is what Every time you do it, there's less kick to it than it was the first time before. 
So that's why more and more bizarre behaviors get created, because there's less and less return on the investment. Well, what I'm trying to say here is that when you analyze the pattern, it's like I'm sitting here and I'm faced with the temptation and I just yield. You see, there's a passivity there, a passivity in contrast to the fact I don't have to. I have a choice and I intend to exercise my choice. I may be tired, I may be emotionally whipped. My choice may have about that much strength to it. That's all I can muster. And that's when I call upon the Lord to amplify that. He did the bread. The kid gave him his little box lunch and he fed 5,000 with it. Why can't he take a minute, faint, pitiful attempt and amplify the power of it? Of course he can do that. The Holy Spirit isn't that business. But he's not going to amplify a vacuum. He's going to amplify a choice. And we have to be active to do that. So there's a profound passivity. And we induce it in our society. We are a pill-centered society. We've got a pill for everything. We've got a medical solution for everything. It's always something outside. It's somehow never my choice. And the problem is, it's always the sick environment. Yeah, what else is new? We live east of Eden. Join the club. So do we. But you see around us, there are people in this that make the choice. The godly choice. And furthermore, in the final analysis, when we come before the Bema seat, we're going to stand before the Son of Man, and we're not going to be able to blow smoke in his face by saying, well, you really didn't walk around. You didn't experience the temptations that I did. You know, easy for you. Will we be able to say that to Jesus Christ? That he never faced the temptations? Are we kidding? He faced temptations a thousand times what we face. Satan himself directly tempts Jesus. I doubt any of us have ever been directly encountered with Satan where he offered us a bona fide offer, by the way, to rule the world. And Jesus made the choice. So, my point here is that the second step of sanctification is very much the center of God's action because if over here in that right column you notice, remember the defeated AI? What, had, what was the great victory militarily before AI? J. Jericho. What did God do at Jericho? Knock the walls down. Could God have knocked the walls down at Ai? Yeah. What happened? Army got defeated at Ai. Now, God risked the lives of believers because somebody screwed up. There wasn't loyalty to him in the camp. And faced with a choice, do I let these guys take casualties in the next battle, or... Do I protect them from taking casualties? Or do I deal with this loyalty problem? What was more important? The battle or the loyalty to God? The lesson of AI. The obvious, it was the loyalty to God. It always takes precedence. So that's why, unless you keep this in mind, the whole aim of sanctification, a lot of things don't make sense. 
Why did God allow this suffering? Why does he do this? Or why does he do that? And we get in some sort of a mode of blaming God. Over here, the victory at Ayalon, the believers made a big mistake. Solomon was, uh, Joshua was deceived. He got locked up in a business agreement, a treaty that he should never have gotten into, and he was kind of stupid about it, foolish. But where was his heart? To obey God. And what did God do to honor his loyalty to God? Stop the sun and the moon. And there was a day in history like nothing had ever been before it, and nothing shall ever be after it. Why? Because loyalty to God was the issue not winning a battle or losing a battle. It was always loyalty to God. At AI, it was loyalty to God. At Ayalon, it was loyalty to God. And it didn't matter what the other things were. But that was always the center. So that's the centerpiece of all the work the Holy Spirit does in our lives today. It hasn't changed. Then we come down to the third aspect of, of sanctification, and that is it always features law and grace. You can't have one without the other and if you exalt one above the other, you always ruin both of them. On the right column, I've given some words about law and grace. Law, publicly revealed will of God. You have to have that. What's the basis of faith? Faith comes by what? By hearing. Hearing what? Noises? No, hearing the word of God. So if we don't have any kind of revelation out there to hear, we can't believe. So... Law is necessary. It protects us against licentiousness. It gives us something to think about. Content. Content. So we don't go off and like the people in Toronto, like laughing hyenas, rolling around, uh, making fools of themselves uh, because they have nothing else to do with their minds. And they're equating this with some great spiritual outpouring. Well, the Holy Spirit's probably having a ball laughing at them. It's not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's no content to it. When God speaks, there's content to it. Can you imagine sitting there listening to Jesus and rolling around laughing? I mean, something totally incongruous about this. Nowhere in the ministry of Jesus do you have everybody behave like a group of hyenas. And yet this, the people have the nerve to call this the, the, some outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Ridiculous. Content. There's always content. When God speaks, he is omniscient. Okay, grace. Now, this is the other side. God's repeated initiative towards sinners in hiding. You know why I wrote that? Because I thought of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. And God had to actively open the conversation, right? Adam and Eve weren't going to open the conversation. Who opened the conversation? God did. Why? Because they were hiding. Why? Because they were feeling guilty. They, they knew they had sinners. And that's always the same. God's initiative. And that protects us against getting arrogant. Because in religious circles, we can become very legalistic and get very arrogant and drive people away because of our arrogance. And we don't want that either. And that's the balance we have to have. Grace and truth. Okay, what's the illustration? The covenant renewal at Mount Sinai. What happened while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments? Example. There was the law, right? Law was being given. How many hours old was the law when they were having a big blast down the bottom of Mount Sinai in idolatry? It probably wasn't 24 hours old and people were already violating the law. What's that a picture of? <laughs> that God is very gracious, so he revealed it the second time. 
Didn't have to, by the way. Remember his conversation with Moses? Get out of the way, Moses. I'll blast these people. And Moses said, no, don't. And there was an intercessor that stood up to God and pled in basis of mercy and grace. So you have law and grace, always combined, and when a group of in Christians emphasize one over the other, you destroy both of them. You have people who will identify with the law, and they will preach the law, the law, the law, the word, the word, the word, and it can degenerate into a human performance medium with no grace. I can't obey the word of God. I need grace. So, emphasis on the law trivializes the law. Because the only way you can be satisfied if you get law, 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 law is to so trivialize it that it can be obeyed in the energy of the flesh. And who did that in the days of Jesus? They trivialized the law, didn't count it to the heart, it was just externals. It was the Pharisees, remember? And what did Jesus do in the Beatitudes? He, he deepened the law back to where it was and he spoke to the heart. Why did he do that? Because that what makes me realize that I can't keep the law. You need a heart transformation to do that. Well, there are other people who emphasize grace. Grace, 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 and never talk about law. And then what happens to grace? Grace becomes identified as sort of what I call an eternal laxity, that God is lax. And then his holiness is compromised. So you see, it's always a battle, always has been a battle. All of our lives we have a battle to keep these two in balance. Then we came down to the dimensions, where we act. There's two places where we act, and you, you can get impatient over one and then get mad about the other. One is don't confuse long-term growth with instantaneous obedience or disobedience. You can have a new believer, godly, hearts in the right place, trusting the Lord, making all the right decisions. New Testament says, don't put him as a leader. Well, why is that? Because he's not mature enough. Doesn't have the time logged yet in fellowship with the Lord through so enough different kinds of experiences so he can meet the big trials. Not proven yet. Remember, David had to prove himself. So, there's two dimensions. The long-term growth that takes time, and we have to be patient about it, and then there's the existential present. This moment, he calls us to obey him here, or we're going to disobey him. It's either or. One of two choices. Then we went to the enemies, and we said that these enemies are left around in the mixed world until they're removed. They're going to continue. They will continue until that last moment when good is ripped away from evil. So there'll always be the world of flesh and the devil. And we learn from Kadesh Barnea and AI and those different places on the right side of the chart, the strategy to cope with that is indirect. Now let's think about why an indirect strategy. What do we say with the aim? What was the aim? The aim is loyalty to God. Is the aim the elimination of the enemies? No. The aim is loyalty to God. So when you read books like Peretti and uh, other people, and they're talking about angelic beings, yes, they're there. You know, the room could be quite crowded tonight, actually. But the emphasis, while we want to understand there are angelic beings, good and evil, in our environment, doing all kinds of stuff, 
observing us. Certain things done in the church service because the angels are watching. You know, they was thinking, hey, gee, I wonder how many are in that aisle. But the point is, they're around. And we don't want to make light of them. They're God's messengers. They do God's work. They probably saved us innumerable times from stupid things. And we haven't even known it. But the emphasis isn't on them. And you'll get into certain Christian books and they're going to get everybody praying about the demons. And this and that and the rest. Are there demons? Yes, there are. I've had some very interesting experiences in my past watching some certain phenomena. And you could detect it with an electrical circuit. Watched 110 volts. This person going through this thing. person sitting over there and 20 feet away, you can put it on a voltmeter and watch the 110 volt line change. Figure that one out. Beats me how to do it. But there's an obvious re reference point interference there. So, yes, they're there. And are they real? Yes, they are real. But the emphasis in the New Testament isn't praying against demons. They're there. They're recognized. We have to deal with them. But how do we deal with them? By being loyal to God. So, see, it, all this works together. Now, we want to conclude, last few minutes here, on page 12, David, what we learn from David, because next week we're going to deal with Solomon's, the, the lessons from Solomon. Now, you to give you a preview of uh, coming attractions, next week when we get together, we're going to talk about what Solomon teaches us about the loyalty to God issue. Solomon's going to come back here, and we're going to deal with that one. That's the one that's going to be amplified by Solomon. But tonight, we want to end with this one that was amplified by David. See, we're going to look at each one of these and the events to come and see what those events teach us about these aspects of sanctification. What did David teach us? He taught us about this thing, the present decisions that we make, the existentially present decisions. In other words, in the knife age of time, David made a choice. And David showed us the right kind of choice to make. David showed us how to get back in fellowship with God. And that's the thing we want to remember about David's great experience. Psalm 51 is quickly reviewing these three parts. Remember the conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts specifically, not a vague thing. He is made aware of the specific offense toward God. And frankly, sometimes if our spiritual life is hindered, it's necessary to take some time and ask the Lord, you know, have I done something wrong here? and bring it to light. I can't confess what I don't know. So, be made aware of the offense toward God. And we said David had societal consequences, sure. But that's not the issue in restoration of fellowship. It's not, how many, it's not really, if you go out and, and kill five people, I mean, to take a gross illustration, it's not the five people that's the problem. It's your relationship with God that's the problem. You've you got jail, you've got police, you've got courts, you've got angry people, you may be lynched, you may uh, go to get hung, but that's all irrelevant right now. The issue is getting back in fellowship with God. So it's not the societal consequences. It is what have I done before God? And that's why when David says in Psalm 51:4, the realization that sins are against the Lord only, not against society. There are social consequences. We're not denying that. But the sin is against God. And we gave the illustration that when you commit a crime, it's against the state, not against the victim. Remember? 
You go to hear a court trial, it's always the state versus somebody. Why is that? Who makes the law? The state does, not the victim. So you can only offend against the lawmaker. Well, that's just a, a faint image of the way God runs the universe. Confession of sin, repentant turning from autonomy, we have all kinds of excuses and blame shifting, it's the other guy, to submission to the cross is the sole point of contact with God. His confession takes us back to the cross. That's why before communion service, Mike always has 1 Corinthians 11. Why is that? What's the communion depicting? The cross. What do we do to prepare our hearts for it? Go back to the cross. It's always going back to the cross. David confesses his disobedience not merely feeling sorry for the consequences, and we know that, and you say, people can say, well, where's, where's the cross in Psalm 51? Right there with the word hyssop. What do you think hyssop was? Hyssop was the thing, what did the priest do with the hyssop? Dipped it in the blood, spread it all over the place. That's where the cross is in Psalm 51. And then restoration, that God eternally forgives. Eternally forgives. But, and that's the big but. And that's the thing we have to remember. But the temporal consequences are not necessarily removed. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. And we can't confuse eternal forgiveness that God granted just like David. Again, memory drill. What did David have to go through after he confessed his sins? What were four major events? The loss of four sons. One, two, three, four. Do you suppose every time he went through that, he would be tempted to think that he had not been forgiven? That God was after him? No. Well, yeah, he probably was. But that's not the truth, is it? He was forgiven at the point he confessed his sin, Psalm 51. That sin is gone. It's not an issue anymore. But the consequences are. And that's what's so hard. David is restored to witnessing to Yahweh's truth and grace while continuing to suffer the fallout of his sin. And that's the challenge. And that's the greater challenge. Because now, added to the previous problem, you've got all this other stuff to walk through. But then that becomes another test. That becomes a test where I'm going to trust the Lord with the stuff. So, that's the doctrine of sanctification and the parts of it. Next week, we're going to deal, we're going to have to, we didn't get through it all, but we're going to run from uh, page 13 to 17. So if you would look through that and look carefully at this whole issue of culture, there's two verses on, on page 16. Look at Isaiah 11:9, if you will, and on top of page 17, Isaiah 41, because it's looking forward to the kingdom that to come. Father, we thank you for your grace and truth. We thank that you that you have provided for us and as we struggle in our Christian lives, may we go back to the large picture and get the assurance running again in our hearts, the spiritual life flowing in our spiritual veins by looking back at who you are, your purposes in history, the ultimate victory that is certain, and then place ourselves within that bigger picture. We thank you for this through the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Um, questions, follow-up questions to lesson will do it, and otherwise we'll call it quits. But yes, but in Jesus, or compared to us. Yeah, compared to us. I mean, you were saying it's more difficult.
For Jesus. Yeah. For No, the only comparison between Jesus and, and that I intended to make between Jesus and Adam was that both of them operated uh, out of an initial zero sin level. And we, uh, they're, they're two very useful exercises for us to think about because they were real people and they depict um, this issue of, of an under test before God for loyalty in a sinless environment. Adam in a sinless environment. Jesus in a sinless inside environment. Uh, and both of them were tested. And both of them had to, were called to be obedient under a choice situation. An active choice situation. So that's why those two become models. And Jesus particularly becomes a model because he one day will judge us. And we're going to be judged by a peer. I mean, part of, you know, jury by peers, jury trial by peers. And the, the Bible follows that principle because Jesus must be a peer and he must have had temptations on the order of ours or greater in order to be our peer. Okay, it's in, why was it greater in Jesus' case than ours? Be, um, to fully get into that, I have to anticipate what I'm going to do when we get into the person of Christ. And it's involved, um, the theological terms for that, uh, there's a theological term called impeccability. And to make a long story short, impeccability says that the Lord Jesus uh, would never sin. And, and that gets involved with the eternal plan of God and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, in the area of the truth called Christology, Jesus is said to be impeccable. And... No, the, the, the concept of impeccability is that Jesus could never sin. Not, both would and could not sin. But it's, a, it's very difficult. It's one of those like the Trinity things because how would then, how would you rate his temptations as real? And that gets into this business of the. The only way I can illustrate it maybe is conceive of sin. Uh, or conceive, not of sin, conceive the temptation as a pressure. And uh, just like a physical pressure. The idea in Christology is that when Jesus Christ was tempted um, in his life by Satan and tempted at Gethsemane, that the sin pressure against him was enormous. It was external pressure, whereas ours is partly internal because of the flesh. But the pressure was immense because he was actively, at that point, isolated from the Father in some mysterious way, on his own, completely, facing all of evil. Yeah. 
And that was a physiological reaction to his body when he must have had high blood pressure or something because his capillaries are breaking under the pressure. So at that point, Jesus um, is standing up to all evil. We never stand up to all evil. So um, whatever he did, I mean, we don't know what he did, but... Yeah. No. Now, he caught the full thing. And so, so that qualifies him to be a peer. So there's nobody that can ever stand before the Lord Jesus and blow smoke and say, using that lame excuse, well, you never experienced temptation like I did. Well, sorry. But how to explain that so whole, you know, gee, how do we ever explain all that? But that, that, I, that's, I'm sorry, in one sense, I, I brought it up tonight because there's a whole background to that whole issue. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, that, to appreciate, that's like this doctrine sequence. To appreciate the temptations of Jesus, you have to go back and first study the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is his undiminished deity, united with true humanity in one person without confusion forever. And the mystery of that has to be dealt with. What happened at the incarnation? Well, what happened really at conception? And how does God unify a divine and human nature? And the thing about the hypostatic union that just blows your mind, it's just incomprehensible, is there's only one person. There's not two. There's not God the Son, God, and God the Son, human. And then there are two people side by side, kind of like this. But it's one personality with two natures. And the more you think about that, the more stunning that is. Because, see what that says? It says that when God made man in his image, that we are made in such close image of God that when he chose, that he had incarnation in mind when he designed Adam and knew that this creature he was designing after himself, he himself would have to join and become it. So it's, an, uh, it's a wonderful, eloquent, profound um, meditation on the design of man and why we can never subscribe to any kind of an evolutionary process that makes our human form an ac a statistical accident. We're not a statistical accident. We are the direct result of a plan that was conceived in eternity past. Yes, it is. 
Right. Well, that's why, Carl, I, I say that uh, with all due respect to the creation evolution controversy that I've been a part of for 35 years, I will still have to say that the evil question far exceeds the importance of the evolution question. In that, if I were a skeptic um, and I chose the battle against a Christian, I would choose to camp on this evil question. But you see, the problem with it is, is we may not have a totally comprehensible answer to the question because really what we're asking with the evil question is why did God make such a history at all? I mean, you can complain about Adam, but you could also complain about Satan. Why, for example, did he create angelic powers that he knew? He wasn't caught by surprise. He, when, the, when God conceived this history, he conceived evil as part of it. It is not an accident. So, the only answer the Bible lets us finally rest with is that the whole thing is somehow to glorify himself. And C.S. Lewis comments that in his book on the Psalms. He says, that sounds so arrogant because we're always, it's, it's unbecoming for us to say, we're going to glorify ourselves. But that's precisely because we're creatures, and it's obnoxious for the creature to act like God. But God can act like God, and that's one of the problems. All our analogies, while they're valid in some respects, are not 100% correspondences. So we, we, our answer to the problem of evil, however, is an answer. Now, it may not be a, de a delectable answer, but the non-Christian has no answer to the problem. He's a hopeless mess. Because one of, first of all, he has no basis to define evil. And he has, once if he does define evil, which he really can't, um, then he has faces the problem, what does he do with it after he's defined it? You know, like the chart, it keeps showing up there. He's stuck with it forever. Because he never can get rid of it. We do. And, and what's, what's sometimes, really, if you really want to get into it sometimes, use the remark, well, I'm thankful for hell. Um, because hell solves the problem. Hell is the garbage dump of history. And it's, it's where evil is placed, finally. Of course, again, the skeptic says, well, why did he create a history in which a hell would be necessary? So, there, uh, I know of no... There, there are subsidiary reasons why God created this history that we're given because of this, because of that, because of this. But you can always say, well, then why did he do this? Or why, why that? and you can keep pushing it back. And ultimately, you fall back time and time again to the fact that God has his own purposes. And when this... When, and you know, another significant exercise, Carl, when I, to do this, is read in Romans 3, Romans 9, Job, and some of these places in the Bible that centrally deal with evil, and watch the answer you get back. The answer... And it sounds cruel, and it sounds heartless. But the answer that you get back from God is, um, I don't really think you're qualified to ask the question. Now, that's quite an arrogant response. But that's exactly what he says to Job. You're not qualified to ask me the question. And then Paul in Romans 9 says, um, he, he's not going to answer, Period. And so that's when you're left with salute and say, yes, sir. And 
I, yes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, ultimately, ultimately, that's the experience pathway. But see, I think what Carl's saying is that to the person who hasn't taken the first step along the path, it's a very difficult thing for him to comprehend. And I think the, what, the only way I, can, I try to deal with it, Carl, when I get into that mess, is to keep pushing, well, what's your, how do you handle that? And not because I think he's got a solution, but because I wanted him to struggle with it a little bit. And first of all, it separates the people that I call the sidewalk debaters that are just bringing it up as a red flag from the people who are really struggling with it. Um, and they have to struggle with evil enough to see that there are no answers before they're willing to get to that point. And I think some of them have to struggle with years with it. Yes. Yeah. You get it. I'll tell you where you also get it a lot is uh, your Jewish people who have had relatives in, in World War II that were killed by the Nazis. I mean, there's almost a whole subset of the Jewish community that uh, one, I remember reading one Jewish thinker that said, if God is alive, he ought to be embarrassed uh, for ever allowing Auschwitz. Um, so there's that response. We want him to protect our. We want him to protect us from our own foolishness, is what. And in one sense, um, uh, I remember an author, a Christian author, um, wrote a book called. Uh, it was a study of psychology, uh, but he was dealing with this problem. And his t I think the title of the book was "Modern Psychology: colon, A Flight from Maturity." And his whole point was that. It's precisely that, the mature, from our point of view, it's the mature creature, man, the mature creature who is man, who recognizes his awesome responsibility before God. And uh, in a small scale, you can see it like with the ecology movement. Now, they're worried about global warming of a few degrees and this sort of thing. Uh, we're worried about global incineration at the time of return of Christ. Um, and we're concerned with an ecological disturbance created by the fall of man in Eden. Well, no, no, none of these ecology people ever want to debate you on that one. That's too radical. See, they're worried about uh, dropping garbage along I-95. We're concerned with the alteration of molecular structure and biological creation due to the fall of Adam. And it's like the judo thing. I mean, they're punching this way, and then you take the punch and pull it further. Ooh, they don't like that, see. So we actually make man far more responsible for the mess in the environment 
than our vice president. And it's something that apparently, and this is just a guess, but obviously when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, apparently God wants us to go through this. For in the end, the praise and the glory to God that's sung in the last part of Revelation is twofold. It's in Revelation 4. We praise you, O God, for thou art worthy. Thou hast created all things. For thy purpose they were created. And then in chapter 5, thou art the Lamb. You have redeemed us unto our God. And so there's two parts. And a, a, a grace-less history, a redemption-less history, um, would be kind of boring. And in the final analysis, the worship and adoration, you, you could raise this question. Would the worship and adoration in Revelation be genuine if it had not come through this pathway, a pathway in which, yes, the creatures did sin, but they recognized the error of their ways. And when God offered them grace, the creature willingly chose it. And now he can praise God in a way he could never have praised him before. So it, it redounds to his glory in a greater way. Of course, that's what Carl's talking about is the person saying, well, why did he do it that way? Well, the reason he did it that way is because he wanted the creatures in a certain way, and that's his right to say that. And there's no nice, polite answer to that. And it's interesting, Carl, because I've, I've struggled with it. How do you be nice and answer that? And every time I go into those paths, I get the feeling that the Holy Spirit wants us to be blunt. Because in that Romans 9 passage, what right do you have as clay to tell a potter how to shape you. Well, that's not a nice, gracious answer, and usually people aren't really prone to like that. Now, and that's why I, when I went through suffering here in two years ago in, that, in the fall, I said maybe it's because the blunt answer knocks us loose from emotional hang-ups. Maybe that's why God does it. But it looks like the way he answers us, he just drives right into us like a Mack truck instead of sending an ambulance out. And I, I've, I've seen that in enough passages that it's consistent in almost every passage where evil is dealt with. God is firm. He's loving, but he is not sentimental. And he doesn't sound very gracious. No. Well, next week will be our last week for two weeks. And we'll try to um, finish that up and we're going to be finishing Kings in the next big unit, chapter 2. So if you want to read ahead, that's the kind of